Hello and welcome back to another episode of Politics on Draft with me, James Tabor. And me, Kartik Sawney. Join us as we go through the political news of the world and try to make sense of everything that's going on. Each week we'll talk about current affairs, political topics and offer some insight, research and opinions along the way. We'll also be bringing on some special guests with interesting stories and their experience of politics. So whether you're a massive politics nerd or someone who simply wants to know more, you're very welcome to join us every Friday from 8am just in time for your morning commute. So get comfortable, get a drink, and remember, the best politics is always on draft. The day is Wednesday, the 8th of February, and it's uh, quite a big day because Zelensky came to Parliament, didn't he, uh, Kartik? He did indeed, he did indeed. Apologies for my voice, by the way. I just realised it sounds even worse now that I'm more aware. Um, I, I have a really, really bad cold, hence you'll realise why I'm drinking what I'm drinking as well. But yes, he did. It was a big yeah. deal. He did. Birth. But what's more important is Kartik. How are you? Uh, I'm ill, uh, but other than that, I'm good. How are you, James? Yeah, no, I'm not doing uh, too bad. So go on then, because you already teased it out. What are you drinking? Uh, well, I'm having a Welsh whiskey, Welsh singing what was called Penderin. Penderin. I'm sorry yeah. if I butchered the name. No, you didn't. Uh, I, I'm drinking it, A, because I'm ill, two, because a friend bought it for me for my birthday. A friend who I actually miss very much at the moment because he's studying in Guildford. You know who you are if you're listening. So, um, yeah. What are you drinking? I am having a Pinot Grigio. Uh, That's my favourite. Terre, Terre Sicilian Casa Torano. Never had it before. It's in one of those little small bottles because I don't... Is it from Wales? No, it's not from Wales. Funnily enough. It's not from Labour-run Wales, as, as uh, Rishi Sunak likes to say. I was about to try and do, say Pinot Grigio in a Welsh accent, but I thought that would be entirely inappropriate. No, let's not do that. Do that. <laughs> but, James, uh, what are we talking about today? Yes, well, I'm going to start off with talking about Liz Truss. Uh, she's back! <laughs> The witch is back. No, you can't say that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and, uh, no, what she's done is she's come back in, to be honest, an unprecedented manner. You know, only within 100 days of her leaving office, she's come back with a 4,000-word essay on basically... So her kind of talking about summing up her time in office. And, I mean, to be honest, I couldn't really believe what I was reading. I- I'll give you guys a little um, summary. So, effectively, what she said was... Uh, she was brought down by the establishment. She was brought down by the economic orthodox uh, orthodoxy, whatever that means. And it's, you know, I mean, she can't. There's this implication that potentially the the kind of the markets and everybody weren't really like the kind of right wing liberal sort of establishment that she kind of thought they would be in terms of reception to her economic plan. Uh, she blames, she partly blames the OBR because uh, she thought that it would have been brilliant if the OBR had done a, a, a forecast because it would have provided greater confidence in the markets, despite the fact that the OBR didn't even do one for covid when the emergency budget came out this is just uh, something that i remembered the other thing is the obr only does it twice a year because if they went forecasting every single month then the markets would be entirely volatile so it's just the economics within me kind of like getting really riled up at the moment um 
so yeah so she said that about the obr um she said that she didn't realize how in debt the bond uh sorry not the bond the uh, uh the pension markets were which is ridiculous because she was um lord as it treasurer uh of the you know lord chancellor, lord of, the, chancellor of, the of the treasury, treasury yeah um, for five years, so it's basically the, the second-hand man, woman of the Treasury under the Chancellor, uh, him or herself. Um, and so you'd think you'd know about what the... De- and you've got Quasi Quarteng, who's also, you know, done degrees in history of economics and stuff like that, you know... He's, he's a doctor, Quasi Quarteng, when yeah, it comes to economics. Exactly. So you'd think he would know about the issue with debt in the pension funds and how that would affect the guilt market. I mean, but... J- James, from a political perspective, you'd think that, you know, from the moment you left office, right, the office, by the way, wasn't that long. It was only about yeah. 40 days. Um, you and you're planning a comeback. You would have come up with an answer to why did you sack the chancellor after two weeks? And it's shocking to me that she didn't come up with a good enough answer for that. Well, the the other thing is just, she, she just mumbles her way through. Yeah. It. She doesn't actually really give too much of like any kind of like, because I think most people, and I think I said this to you earlier, Carter, most people would have been fairly happy if she said, yeah, do you know what? This didn't work out uh, the way I thought it was going to. I'm sorry. I still think my economic plan would have worked in the long run, but them's the breaks if you kind of use mm. her predecessor's language. But uh, no, she just kind of like blames everybody else and says that she was taken down and that it's caused her to be very scarred. And she said about she she went all kind of sit, sort of on a bit of a sympathy sort of trail by sort of saying her husband said it was the worst thing she could have ever done, but she wanted to because it was the best thing she could do for the country and all that. But I don't know. It's just not very convincing and. I think William William Hague. Sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting you. Yeah. William Hague jumped in on this as well, didn't he? He was talking yeah, about how politicians don't take responsibility for what went wrong. You know, if if after 40 days you end up resigning, the problem is you. It's not the left wing economic establishment. And on the left wing economic establishment question, our professor Phil Cowley had something interesting to say on that as well. And you've spoken to him about it. So tell us about that. Yeah, I did actually speak to him. So he did a bit article in the Times because as soon as this came out, the press started briefing about how she said the left, the left economic orthodoxy. But if you actually look on a four thousand word essay, she never calls economic orthodoxy left wing. Mm-hmm. And so Phil Cowley, basically Professor Phil Cowley from Queen Mary came up with this amazing article to be honest when I wrote when I read it I had to read it again because I thought it was brilliant saying it was like the 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 worst thing was the thing she never said yeah sorry Phil (laughs) the worst thing (laughs) the worst thing that she said was what she didn't say because the press just totally like that's it and that I mean I partly I'm wondering if that might have something to do with Boris but that's me speculating beyond belief there but I mean that's the other thing and this kind of calls into the grander theme of ex-prime ministers getting involved you know 
I think Rishi Sunak really needs to do something about this because he can't go into 2024 with a fragmented party. You know, he's got to be pretty ballsy here and kind of say to his party, we are not going into this election with one prime minister, you know, saying that I'm not being ballsy enough. The other prime minister going around the world, coming up with his own foreign policy you know, he's got to get a handle on this. And I think he's almost been too concessional to those voices. Because I know what he's probably thinking. Oh, I don't want to upset the ERG. I don't want to upset the, the Boris lovers in the party. Oh, you'd upset Nadine Doris at the best of it. You know, that's it. Oh, you know, she probably isn't going to win in the next election anyway. So, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But on Rishi Sunak, if it's okay with you, James. Yes, no. So... On Tuesday, there was a bit of a, well, yesterday now, there was a bit of a mini reshuffle. But it wasn't mm. that mini. It's going to cost the taxpayer a lot of money. And um, it moved around a lot of people. So yeah. just to give you some background, uh, he's, Rishi Zulak has basically created three new departments. Uh, mm. The Department for Science and Innovation, um, which I think, you know, I was I was critical of it yesterday, but in the long run, it's going to be quite... I think that's quite a good thing, actually. Mm. Um, department for Energy and Net Zero. And then there's a separate, separate department for Department for Business. Um, and, you know, the creation of those three departments is a completely rational thing to do. But the timing of the creation of those three departments is a very, very stupid idea. Because realistically speaking, we're, what, nine to 12 months out from the next general election? Right. Mm. And this guy has created three new departments, the cost of which overall experts have estimated to 15 million pounds per department, 45 million pounds overall. About 100,000 civil servants are going to have to move around. Um, they're going to take approximately four to six months to settle into their new roles. A, they were going to be insecure about their roles in the first place because they don't know what's going to happen with their job. So policy that's been oven ready, quote unquote, is going to go on the back burner for the next six months. Nothing's going to happen. Mm. And I think in terms of the actual creation of the departments, good idea. We do need a separate department for energy. It was a stupid idea seven years ago when they merged it uh, with business, but I'm glad they've done it, but the timing is really off. But but it was a bit it was a bit like when he introduced that whole like promise of making every A level student study maths. It's a bit like where on earth did you get that policy from? And secondly, why on earth did you put that policy through? I mean, I, I think it's it's just to basically throw in some like some caveats and basically you know to kind of move the agenda around a bit. But I don't. I don't know. It's just another thing that see, I think... see. Maths A level thing. I don't think we've discussed it on the podcast. No, we haven't. But, um, see, it was a weird one because I, I saw it and I was. Just, it's just trying to piss off the left. It's just trying to piss off the Labour Party. It's just going to try to piss off a lot of people that are going to shout nanny state, nanny state, and that's it. I don't think, and I hope I don't regret this, but I don't think it's actually a policy that's going to be brought forward. But I, I don't think, think it has mental. pissed off the left. Like, because nobody's really seriously people talking about it. I think the intention yeah. was laugh. Um, but people were laughing. People are laughing because they're seriously saying, if this is the priority 
of the government instead of sorting people's energy bills instead of trying to lower inflation you're making all a-level students study maths you know i mean i'm kind of moving away from that whole argument of being like oh he wants to turn everybody into an economic machine because i mean like we still can do we can go in which direction we want to you know um Mm. unless he goes full you know thomas hobbs and commands everyone to be coerced into his own uh It'd be really, really funny if Liz trusted A-level maths and then she led to lose £30 billion. But the other big news that came out of the reshuffle was there was a new chairman appointed, Greg Hands. I can't wait for the hands in the till memes um, when eventually he gets done for his... I hope he he doesn't get (laughs) done for some sort of sexual scandal because what have we had? We've had Chris Pincher. Let's not go there. uh, Yeah. But the, the the laughable and arguably worrying thing is that Lee Anderson, 30p Lee, has been appointed as deputy chair of the Conservative Party. Now, mm. Lee Anderson is an ex-Labour councillor who was kicked out for antisocial behaviour. And then he, whilst pitching to be a Conservative MP in his constituency, he suggested that... Um, people who have been charged with antisocial behaviour should be uh, sleeping in tents. Um, and then he also set up someone to canvas uh, in front of the media so that it would appear that he was more likeable than he actually is. Um, nice. And having seen him in Parliament here and there, no one's ever talk- talking to him, so I don't <laughs> think he is that likeable in the first place. Ooh, all right, but... <laughs> You get in all bitchy. Look at that! <laughs> but... Um, He's an absolute loon who's been appointed as deputy chairman. I don't know if he's been appointed as, um, you know, just to keep him quiet because he's creating bad headlines. But we'll update you when he gets sacked because he will eventually get sacked because Ooh. he'll say something stupid. Big, um, big predictions there, Kartik. So obviously, Zelensky. Yeah. People didn't know this yesterday, but he came to the UK, uh, addressed the UK parliament and met the king. He's also requested new uh, UK fighter jets. Joe Biden, State of the Union. Yes. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> yes. It was it was really, really interesting because it was exactly what you wouldn't expect from Joe Biden. He um, has arguably been, you know, people call him Sleepy Joe. But, you know, here he comes, uh, you know, does the State of the Union and comes out with a bit of white line fever. Um, he quite literally spoke to members of the right-wing Republican caucus, um, the right-wing elements of the Republican Party, um, directly in his State of the Union, um, to the point that he got the reaction that he exactly wanted with um, members of the House of Representatives shouting at him, um, which was interesting. Uh, He quite literally negotiated the budget in conversation in the State of the Union. So. And, you know, I, I think I didn't expect it personally, but I think mm. he will stand in 2024 to be the president again and run for a second term. So he has to show that he's still strong. He's not Sleepy Joe. He's still got a lot of power. And I, it, it just wasn't expected. It was quite interesting. Um, and, yeah, that's what I have to say. I, I think he was so impressive, and I'm not surprised. You know, he was vice president for the entirety of Obama's time. And so he's he's used to Congress and he obviously doesn't go into Congress as much as president now. So I'm not surprised that he came in and basically managed to um, 
<laughs> commit no, Republicans. I'm, to I'm, I'm personally not surprised either, mm. but I, I, I do see why other people might be surprised because of the way the American I mean, he's aged so well, badly as well. Yeah. It's, it's not great. But um, but before we go to the break, Kartik, uh, we've got our guest uh, coming on afterwards. And I think you should just do a quick introduction before we go to the break. Yes. So we've got a guest coming on. Uh, as some of you may know, uh, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern uh, has resigned. She resigned on the 25th of January. Um she personally felt that she no longer had enough left in the tank, but she was arguably one off, if not the most influential female in the political sphere. Uh, not only a terrific prime minister for New Zealand, but also an inspirational figure for every woman interested in politics. So to talk about women politics, we have invited uh, a friend of ours, or you could even say influencer friend of ours, um, Alice from uh, Girls Who Talk Politics. So we're going to welcome Alice in just a moment. Yeah, see you after the break. Hello and welcome back uh, from the break. We are here with Alice from Girls Who Talk Politics. Alice, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yes, no, we're we're doing good. And uh, so what we do with guests that first come on is we uh, ask them, what are you drinking? Because we like to sort of make this be is like if you're in the pub or in a bar and just sort of chatting about you know politics with friends so Alice what are you drinking? I'm being very boring and I'm not drinking beer anything alcoholic I'm drinking a diet coke my favorite drink actually I mean it's midweek so you can judge us for drinking like when we've got (laughs) things to do in the morning (laughs) so uh, that that is absolutely uh fine but um yeah, no, uh, we, we've got some sort of interesting things to talk about. So uh, I think Kartik is going to kick us off. Yes, um, I'm not going to kick you off, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I am going to ask. So, Alice, you are currently a student at Queen Mary. That's how we know you. But you mm-hmm. also run a page, or you co-run a page, am I right? Uh, yeah. Called Girls Who Talk Politics on Instagram, which, as you uh, describe on your bio, is an intersectional feminist platform advocating for gender equality across politics so tell us about girls who talk politics and tell our listeners what does intersectionality actually mean yeah sure so um myself and four others we make content for girls who talk politics and we cover loads of different issues we cover like current affairs break them down so they're a lot easier and more accessible to understand that maybe traditional media would kind of um you know, make them out to be. Um, but also we focus on issues that potentially aren't as, you know, covered by mainstream media that sort of get brushed under the carpet. Um, so a lot of issues to do with women. Um, and like you said, in our bio, we take more of an intersectional approach. So not just looking at women um, in terms of, you know, like gender or sex, but also take into consideration um, ethnicity, race, um, sexual orientation things like that as well um so yeah that's kind of our page and what we do yeah it's it's a brilliant it's a brilliant page I mean when I came across it I just I mean you said it about breaking down the kind of the political news and you are so like hot on it as well like something yeah. something happens and it's just like right we're posting it and it I mean yeah it breaks it down really really well and I do like the fact that you also on kind of like when you sort of like slide across 
you then sort of talk about the sort of implications for you know for for women for people of maybe BAME um for people of different sexuality and I yeah I think that it's it's a very good project what you guys have done actually yeah thank you um yeah it the the main reason why we kind of did it is because oh, sorry um obviously like politics is a very male heavy space mm, and I feel like a lot of women not get scared but almost kind of get pushed out of the narrative and pushed out of the picture mm. um so our kind of aim is to like I said make it more accessible just make it a bit more interesting as well and highlight mm. issues that would interest a lot of women um that like I said aren't really picked up by mainstream media and, and kind of forgotten about and pushed under the carpet so yeah that's kind of what we do um yeah. and just yeah, be, just, just before Kartik talks about sort of UK politics and stuff like that because what I was going to say there was I mean we had the discussion last week with Cameron from Insulate Britain about you know mainstream media and it is I mean it's in, it's entirely male stream if you will um it's I mean there's something that actually funnily enough and Kartik will bash me for for watching it it's something that Prince Harry picked up in his documentary that he did that the entire British print media industry is completely, it's like 95% white. Mm. And that's pretty bad because obviously it's such a big source of news for a lot, a lot of people and informs their decisions on things. Yeah, hugely. And I think that really impacts on um, the, you know, what we see in newspapers and what we see on the news and the stories mm. they like tend to pick out and make like the headlines. I think, yeah, that's hugely, you know, a huge um, reason or like a huge reason behind the headlines we sort of see and the ones that sort of get, like I said, like swept under the carpet. Um, So, yeah. Alice, I'm going to jump in and talk to you about UK politics now because Mm -hmm. we're in the UK. and We are. And I'm very interested in UK politics personally. So I'm just going to jump in with the question that a lot of people talk about when it comes to women in politics, especially in the UK, is the Conservative Party has had three female leaders. When I was typing the brief up, I put two female leaders down because I almost forgot about Liz Truss. Um, <laughs> the Conservative Party has had three female leaders and three prime ministers. We can't accuse them of we can't accuse them of not having a female PM because they've been in opposition for most of the time, but the Mm -hmm. Labour Party has never elected a female leader. They've had two Mm -hmm. unelected sort of interim acting leaders, Harriet Harman and another one whose name is slipping me, Margaret Beckett. Um, But why do you think that is for the Labour Party and what do you think they can do to change that? That's a tricky one because I think there's lots of reasons. I think firstly, Obviously, the Conservative Party have been in government for so long. So the spotlight has been on them to make sure they have, you know, a diverse cabinet, mixture of women, men, people of different ethnicities as well. And less of that spotlight has been on the Labour Party to have to do that. Um, But also, I think just in general, there's kind of there's a bit of an issue with with um, certainly women who have very strong voices and many things like Angela Rayner. She has had so much like hate and backlash um, from people in the Labour Party. And even today, I saw that actually a man has been arrested because they she, she's had like death threats from this guy. Um, not not Labour MP, just a random person. But again, I feel like it's just that whole 
but there's not that level of acceptance yet it's all it almost feels that they're not quite ready and um yeah I guess they've not had the heat that the conservative party have had because they've not been Mm. in in power um Mm. as well so it'll be interesting to see if they do get elected whether that will change and their cabinet will be you know uh, mixed in terms of like uh, gender and di- and race and diversity and things like that. That'll be really interesting mm. to see if, but, if that but happens. What I will say, and actually in mm. in sort of, I will give this to Labour. When you look at that Labour front bench, I mean, regardless of the person who is right at the very very top, mm. I think you look at that. I mean, you've got, as you said, like Angela Rayner. You've got. Um, You've got Thang and Debenoir. You've got Yvette Cooper. You've got these really, really strong women. You've got, De- you know, you're David forgetting the Shadow Chancellor. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yes, of course, Rachel Reeves as well. And you've got these really powerful people that are are women. And I think the the good thing about that in, especially in Labour, is of course, you know, Labour it's it's more of a joint in terms of policy. It's a joint venture, whereas mm. especially with the Conservative Party the leader and the chairman of the Conservative Party can pretty much vote on whatever they want to be in that manifesto. So mm. if there's any environment for women to kind of be in that position, that I think the Labour Party is the best environment, even if it means like not being right at the centre in that, on the yeah. dispatch box. In, uh, can I, can I jump in? Yeah. Not to, uh, n- n- not to talk over your response, Alice, but it's. I think we're missing out two things when talking about the Labour Party. I think, and it's 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 weird for me to criticise the Labour Party on this because I am a Labour member, and I actively work for the Labour Party. But I think one reason you can attribute to the lack of female representation in the Labour Party is its trade union background. You know, trade unions were traditionally filled with working class white males and that is because those were most of the people that were working in that uh, in mines in 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 blue collar uh roles so that that could definitely be a contributing factor alice you mentioned you know if they get into power if they would potentially elect a, a female leader i think there's definitely discussion when i when i when i was when i have discussions about future leaders um, with Labour colleagues, not that we're thinking of uh, replacing Keir Starmer anytime soon, but I think it's 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 always it's almost assumed that the next leader is going to be a female, and it's almost a question of who. Um, and I think a lot of people have their eyes set on Angela Rayner uh, for the future mm. role of leader of the Labour Party. But please go ahead. Yeah, I think it was interesting, James. You talked about environment. And I think the environment, not just in the Labour Party, but as a whole for women in politics is quite a difficult one. Um, Mm. So, like, I remember, for example, um, Diana Diana Abbott, and Mm. she she got picked up by the headlines um, when she wore, like, two different shoes or, like, drinking on the tube and, like, all of that, like, absolutely Mm. ridiculous absolutely ridiculed and then we obviously have the death of joe cox which is really really sad as well numerous of uh, numerous other female mps have received like death threats um like a huge amount of hate which has again really put them in a position of am i actually 
safe to take on these higher roles within government um, and have more like exposure in the media because otherwise, you know, there's the potential for my family to get fattened, for myself. And like, again, it's just, it's one of those things that isn't really spoken that much about. I don't know, I feel like, because obviously you guys are doing an internship in Parliament. When I did mine, that was very much like a thing that there is this undertone of misogyny, like harassment, etc. that isn't really spoken that much about. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. So do, so do you think that's more, sorry for me and straight, do you think that's more in the, the Westminster culture or do you think that's kind of more political discourse in general because obviously he talks about the media and stuff and the way I see it is that I think part of the problem is the kind of the celebrity sort of nature that's come to politics because mm. you know celebrities of all sorts get like all sorts of hate and you almost I almost think to myself well why do politicians get this hate because ultimately what they're doing being a politician in theory should be for a very progressive you know, for for the point of progression, whatever your point, whatever your view on progress is, yeah. yeah. But whatever progress is to whoever, you should you you you'd think that people aren't getting these kind of abuse, but they just are. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's awful, really. Because why should someone be you, again? You may agree with them, you may not not like what they're mm. doing, but why should people be thrown like verbal and physical abuse for doing their job at the end of the day? You know what I mean, um, yeah. and yeah, it's it's really it's a really tricky one. It is really really scary. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's difficult. I can imagine. I can imagine. I, I mean, naturally, I mean we haven't mentioned it, and if if I'm attaching a trigger warning, so if you're going to be triggered, please skip forward ten seconds. But there, I was reading up on Thangam Devonet. There, are, female MPs received so many rape threats as well. I mean, male MPs don't obviously get that, but no. female MPs do. And that is terrifying. If And why would you ever recommend your wife, your friend, your girlfriend to go into politics if if they were if if you hear stories of politicians receiving those sort of threats so it's yeah. it's definitely in terms of a national discourse as well and we'll come on to the national discourse about women in power in general but it's definitely the national discourse as well uh, james you wanted to ask about all women shortlists am i right yes well i was going to ask about the fact that the Labour Party sometimes have all uh, women shortlists and oh, stuff. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, but, and there's some other th- sort of like policy things I thought we talked about, but why don't you just mm-hmm. like quickly talk about that and then we can kind of also go into one of the bigger campaigns that you have, which is voter ID. So yeah, obviously the Labour Party in certain constituencies have all women shortlists. All of the candidates for the area have to be women. Um some, I think people have different, like, you know, opinions with it in the sense that is it just like quota filling and mm. are they just doing it for the sake of getting more women in politics or are these women actually like fit for the role and um, mm. are they actually like deserving of it? You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a tricky one. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's worked. Um, I think the Conservative Party they have a slightly different way of doing things, don't they? I'm not they, sure. They have a they have an A list. 
it's, yeah. it's weird. So I'm I'm personally all for all women shortlist. I think they're brilliant. Yeah. And I think for anyone that goes through the selection process to become a parliamentary candidate in the first place, they have to be become good. an MP. Mm. Yeah. You have to be competent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not like you these women to... are just like random people off the street. Like yeah, exactly. They're capable, and... competent people. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, the question of you know is the Labour Party just picking women randomly just to fill a quota? To an extent, yes, they are filling a quota. They're trying to have you know equal parity of women in the houses of parliament and that's a good thing fundamentally mm-hmm. and the selection process that they go through yeah brilliant the conservative party has a different process they don't necessarily fill a quota um they try to um have an a-list where they select particular candidates you know rishi sunak pretty patel candidates like that came in through the a-list but we're, we're going to come on to voter ID laws now, Alice, if that's okay yeah. with you. Yeah. And explain to us what these voter ID laws are and also do they disproportionately impact women? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a new law, essentially, that has said that if you want to go and vote in your local elections, you need to bring some form of voter ID, so like a driving licence, passport, things like that. Um and we've never had to do this before. So if you've not voted in election, but when you go to a polling station, you literally just like give your name, you give your postcode. Mm. Um, and then that's all kind of like the information they need and you can just go and vote. But this time you need to have a form of ID. Um, the reason why they, or well, the reason why the government kind of argued for this, um, to, to be honest, I don't think the reasons are particularly strong um, because <laughs> voter fraud is very minimal in this country. Mm, um, in fact, it's pretty negligible from yeah. what mm. I've kind of seen. Um, so it's look, taking a more like sinister view at it, um, looking at the people who don't have IDs currently, many people from... Um, poorer social economic backgrounds, um, many people of colour, women of colour also, um, mm. younger people as well, people mm. who um, typically are more likely to vote for the Labour Party. Um, mm-hmm. They're the sorts of people who may not have access to um, IDs, also like um, immigrants as well, like uh, refugees, etc. They're the sorts of people who don't have these IDs. Um, And essentially, it's just going to make it so much harder, if not impossible, for them to vote. Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that's kind of the issue there. There is a deadline, um, which you can apply for a, like, photo um, ID card. Um, So that's on the 25th of April. That you can apply for for one of those if you don't have any other form of voter ID. Um, mm-hmm. The link. Please do send us the link and we'll, and we'll share it. <laughs> yeah, as well. it's in our bio. I'll send you guys the link as well. Um, so yeah, you can do that. Um, but ultimately, if people don't do that, and I feel like this is something that is hardly being, you know, spread around in social media. Like I feel like not many people know about it, and I don't think many people know about the law either. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, it's just going to disadvantage or disenfranchise a, a really big proportion of people. Mm. 
yeah we'll put we'll put your um we'll put your instagram in the bio so people can um can go ahead and and kind of have a look at that i for, it's a really weird policy point because i mean it's entirely political let's mm. be real oh, it's entirely yeah. political there's, there's there's no logic behind it because the conservatives have always been for this very kind of like anglo-saxon notion of privacy i.e if you wanted to you could just go throughout life with cash interact with nobody basically be an anomaly in terms of your existence in the state and that's absolutely fine Mm -hmm. and i know that that you know with the internet and with sort of data protection and other sort of things that's slightly already been eradicated in some sense and you know i mean like there's bloody cctv everywhere you know without going into like any sort of like conspiracy of the state's (laughs) always watching you but i mean like i think it doesn't even need to be said (laughs) but um yeah, I just I found it so bizarre, but yeah, I mean, it is entirely political, isn't it? Yeah, hugely, hugely, and I think they're almost um, kind of looking over at America as well, mm. um, and there, like having photo ID to vote in your election is like obviously a really huge thing. Maybe they're kind of emulating some of the reasoning behind that as well, bringing it over here um and the political reasons behind that but i just the main argument that they led with was obviously like we're gonna you know be against voter fraud blah 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 it just doesn't stand especially as we've never had to carry around any form of personal id before so like in europe they're very big on like id cards and i know in germany like you have to like carry around an id card like that's never been a thing here and you know we've always been a fairly like relaxed state I'd say um but it's a weird kind of sudden shift in in in, yeah yeah I mean there's this if you don't mind me interjecting just quickly Carter because I was going to bring in the whole uh, gender reform act of Scotland because obviously um, for for listeners who don't know Scotland the SNP tried to pass an act which would uh lower um it would lower the uh the ability to go through um the transition for trans people to i believe 16 and that got completely vetoed by the uk government and the smp are calling it you know like the fact that it's like an attack on trans people um the government are saying it's due to um due to sort of constitutional equality amongst the uk and I think regardless on your view on it, because I think there's some pretty strong views from both sides of the argument. And I think there's also that what, what I think can be the consensus is what you're seeing is parties using a very, very fragile topic of intersectionality for party politics. And that's from both sides. You know, I, I do not believe the SNP <laughs> believe that they could have got that that bill through. Yeah, I think. Of, I, like they they might have thought they were, they were doing a really really good thing but i really just the politics is so strongly entrenched in everything that's being done here and it shouldn't be like that it should be that these issues are given the respect that they deserve to be honest yeah i think it's we've been very lucky in this country to i think avoid a culture war mm. so in america these issues you know 
access to reproductive health, trans rights, gay rights, all of these things, they're so politicised. And we've been very, very lucky in this country to not have that. And they've not been used as like a political um, kind of issue to really debate much on. But what we're seeing is, again, with like the, um, the trans rights bill in Scotland and various other things, the culture war is kind of creeping in on us Mm. and I think we need to be kind of careful um with that and back on the um then in Scotland it was a really I think it was quite shocking to be honest um in the way the UK government responded to that um in terms of like the devolution like setup so usually Scotland would be able to just pass those sorts of things um and that's in their jurisdiction to pass those sorts of laws. Um, but the fact that the UK government intervened and they intervened so heavily and were like, absolutely not. Um, I think, again, that really, really shows that that up to challenge these um, issues, despite it shaking the devolution kind of settlement and giving even more ammunition to the SNP to call for another um, uh, referendum on leaving the the United Kingdom. So yeah, I think that's quite an interesting point to hmm. It's it's interesting because I was waiting for James to jump in and say, well the Labour Party also voted with the government to veto this law. Yeah. But I guess I, I guess yeah, I have to they... jump in as a Labour member you have to yeah, you're, you're on form today. Top form party. <laughs> I like it. I, I, I'm coming across as violently left wing. But yeah it's true. Um the Labour Party front bench did veto it. Um Along with the government, and they voted with the government, and it was, uh, it was a whipped vote. Um, so that that definitely adds an interesting dimension, especially since yesterday, at a LGBTQ Friends of Labour or something like that event, um, Keir Starmer supported gender reform acts and stuff like that. So it definitely adds an element of contrast. I think they. I think the Labour Party, along with the Conservative Party, just wanted to veto uh, a Scottish Act just just to show their power over Scotland in that sense. And it is disappointing that such an important issue like trans rights becomes the battleground for that. So it's irritating and it's unfortunate that we can't seem to do anything about it at this stage. But I wanted to talk to you about misogyny in UK politics and I was going to ask you, you know, does misogyny... In UK politics exist, but after having our conversation, I feel like the answer would be yes, and I agree with you. Um, although I think some people would argue straight away that oh, we've had three female prime ministers. Of course, misogyny doesn't exist. But if you look at the hate mail that those prime ministers received, irrespective of their political leanings, I think you disagree. Um, I was going to ask you about the Women's Equality Party. Now it's a, it's a minority party in the mm-hmm. UK. Not a lot of people know about it, but it's received quite a lot of traction recently. So tell us about the WEP. Yeah, so the WEP are essentially UK's only sort of like feminist party. Again, they take a more, they take an intersectional approach um, and similar to kind of what we do on our page, they highlight issues that again, are swept under the carpet that mainly concern um, uh, women. So even just by looking at their Instagram page and their social media page, which I think they're like really, really good at highlighting these things, um, 
they look at so some of the more recent things that they've covered uh, misogyny in schools um, and, and the rise of sexual harassment in schools as well police violence which is obviously um, a really really big thing at the moment with David Carrick being arrested and convicted yeah. for 48 uh, rapes against 12 women um, and also reproductive rights in the UK which again is an issue that I don't think mainstream media covers at all something that you think is the fight over in America and overseas, but actually it's very much uh, a current issue here. So they're covering all the things that are, I think, that I've forgotten about, essentially. Mm. Um, like you said, they're very kind of small fringe party. Um, they only really stand for election in London, I believe, um, especially on the London Council elections. Um, but there's like many different kind of groups all over the country. So yeah, if you're interested, then definitely like check them out. It's, it's interesting because I'm going to ask you one second to last question before I ask you the final question, because you were talking about culture war. Mm -hmm. And I think you said that we don't really, we haven't really had one here. And I would argue that we secretly are having a culture war. I just don't think it's being produced in, public media in the same way that it is in america i think there is a culture war i think the government is or the conservative party is waging a culture war on on specific issues yeah. and it's there but it's just in the background it's on twitter it's on reddit it's on instagram yeah and people do face the brunt of it but it's just not being covered so you know for example i think Suella Braverman was questioning at one point abortion rights, or it was either Suella Braverman or Brizzy Patel who were questioning abortion rights in the UK. And I know for a fact Jacob Rees-Mogg has questioned abortion rights in the UK. So I think when it comes to culture war issues, almost everything is on the table, especially when it comes to misogyny in UK politics. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's definitely on the table for sure. Um... I think the difference between us and America is that um, issues like abortion and um, women's rights, etc. In America, they're very much at the front of like party political arguments. Whereas here, like you said, they're kind of like behind the scenes. Um, a few members of each party will hold these views, but they won't really kind of share them or expose them. You'll only kind of know about it unless you look at their voting record for certain things. Um, but yeah, it's 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 scary because when we are legislating on things like reproductive health and um, uh, sort of women's welfare, etc., these are the people at the end of the day making the decisions. And if they hold these views, even if they don't make them particularly public, um, they're, they're, they're being still... discussed in the back channels. Yeah, exactly. They're still being discussed in the back channels. So. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, if there are people with these views in a position of power, um, then is anything going to kind of change? And are, the, and are these issues that are being swept under the carpet, um, are they ever going to kind of come to the forefront and come into, like, parliamentary debate? Mm. And I think, I think that pretty much... That sum that sums up, I think, the thing that you know you're campaigning for. And so I think the last question that uh Karsit was gonna have, and I'm gonna preface it by saying, you know, thank you very much for coming 
on to the podcast because it's been it's been just so good to kind of hear the way that you think and the kind of the way that that's sort of influencing your sort of approach to political activism um so we're going to ask you one last question and that is you know to be honest we in terms of conversation we've had a pretty saddening conversation to be honest so so about the situation about the situation yes so so the question that I I think we wanted to pose to you was you know what is your message to women and girls and all people who who feel marginalized as a result of just the way that politics is what is your message to them you've got to embrace it um, and change it from within. That's the only way things are going to change. Um, you know, share your experiences, um, explain to people the issues that do get swept under. And you don't have to be a politician to do these things, right? So, like, you know, you can literally talk to your friends about it or um, talk to your boyfriend about these issues or whoever. Um, just gain a bit more awareness because the more that people are aware, um, the the easier the discussion is is going to happen. Um, yeah, I think that's really really important. Even though we've touched on some pretty depressing things um, in this podcast, I really hope it doesn't put anyone off from going into politics. Um, in that yeah. respect, are we going to see you standing as an MP, Absolutely. either for the WEP or for the Labour Party, <laughs> or? You know, by some deviation for the Conservative Party. Um, my instant answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> what for the Conservative Party or for, yeah. for both? For either. Um, yeah, my an MP. I don't see that in my future. But never say never. Who knows? Could be. Yeah, we'll, we'll hold you. We'll hold you to that yeah, when you're. Exactly. I don't know the future. Uh, minister for for women or so Alice it's been absolutely brilliant having you on uh, the podcast and as uh, I've said already we'll put all of uh, Alice and her colleagues uh, Instagram and such below so you can go and check that out Um, so yeah I think that all that is left to say is thank you very much Alice and it's goodbye from me James and it's goodbye from me Kartik and we'll see you next week on Politics on Draft. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye.